Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium Episode 278, The New Roman Empire with Antony Cordelis, Part 2, Christianity and the Law. This is my second conversation with Professor Cordelis about his new book, which covers the entirety of Byzantine history. Because I began this podcast in 476 AD, rather than with the founding of Constantinople, a lot of the details of early Christianity were lost on me. I was therefore particularly fascinated by the introduction to this book, where Professor Caldellis addresses many of the issues around the Roman conversion to the Christian religion. We also talk about the law, which is a subject I haven't been able to go into great detail about on this show, and it dovetails somewhat with our discussion of Christianity. It's another long and in-depth conversation. I hope you enjoy. Professor Caldellis, welcome back to your home away from home here on the history. Hello, Robin. <laughs> yes, I'm in my daughter's room hiding from Marjorie's piano because she <laughs> she started playing just a few minutes before we were set to record. Ah, so it might be nice background noise. Background. Uh... <laughs> no, I don't think you can hear it from here. And the microphone I have is good enough that it doesn't pick it up. Uh, but I say all of this by way of persuading your listeners that we're not actually two AIs talking to each other. <laughs> My understanding is that there is enough recorded audio of both of us out there now ah. that you could train a good AI to mimic us very well. <laughs> oh, dear. This is the, the future of podcasting. Yeah. Yes, I have to mention things like Marjorie and my daughter's room, just things that an AI wouldn't know. Oh, yes. Maybe it would. <laughs> you've said it too many times yes oh dear well anyway uh, this is the second of a four-part series covering your new history of new rome um and today we're going to talk about christianity and a little bit about the law um when i started the podcast uh i was anxious that people would start emailing me with corrections immediately all my factual errors and you know this was my great fear. Fortunately, that didn't happen a lot in terms of the narrative, but it did happen a bit in terms of Christianity. Um, oh. People's understanding of theology, uh, you know, those those with a far better understanding than me, and um, uh, 
those who are practicing um particularly uh, orthodox christians today you know picked me up on my kind of loose use of terminology or slightly inaccurate descriptions of christian practice and i think part of what happened is i didn't start the podcast in 330 ad i didn't ground myself in early church history and so one of the parts of your book that i found the most interesting was the discussion of christianity in new rome and you argue in the book i think that in many ways christianity was romanized as much as the roman empire was itself christianized if is that an accurate statement and if so can you explain what you meant by that well, I'll have to answer the first part of that question with a yes, because it's too soon for me to start revising major parts of the book, <laughs> especially as I haven't even seen it yet. But anyway, once I get it in my hands, then maybe I can start tearing it apart. Um, there, so there's actually many historians now who are looking at early Christianity and coming to this kind of conclusion. I'll mention Peter Heather's book, Christendom which just came out. Um, but it all depends on what we mean by it, right? But to say, so this is not an attempt by us to please your listeners who sent in questions from the Orthodox practicing Orthodox. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think it will, you know, disturb them either. Uh, you know, these are just historical processes and Christianity is a historical, you know, force and a, and a religion that, you know, you might have a, a kind of abstract stratospheric view of it as, you know, um, just a set of beliefs that are timeless, but at the same time, it's always also um, something that human beings in particular times and places do. Um, so we're looking more at the latter. All right. So that's right. Your podcast began after a lot of this story had already kind of been, the dust had settled on this story. Um, so if you or any of your listeners pick up histories of early Christianity, especially at the point where it begins to intersect with imperial authority, right? Like under Constantine and his successors for the most part. You're going to find a narrative that highlights the triumph of Christianity over paganism, right? Like that's the story that Christians back then liked to tell too, right? That Christianity was locked in the struggle with false religion and false gods and was persecuted and emerged, quote, triumphant. It beat them, they're gone. And this is so obviously true in a certain way, like you look around you and there are no altars to Zeus or, or Jupiter in your, your part of the world or, you know, whatever. So it, it's, a, it's a narrative that is both true in a sense and also one that Christians have liked to tell. And by the way, I should say that Christian writers were very good at capturing the narrative. Uh, this is a very important part of the story. Uh, so whether they're talking about the persecutions or the martyrs or, or the spread of their faith or um, becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire or defeating paganism afterwards and all of that, they're very good at telling the story in ways that are gripping and, right, yeah. Okay. Now, there's a flip side to this story that doesn't get told very often, and that's the one that I highlighted in the book um, for a number of reasons. But the story is, by the way, 
Not the usual flip side of the story, which is like, oh, Christians persecuted pagans and, you know, they were like the Christians are the un scrappy underdog who gets persecuted and then they turn into the imperial overlords who are persecuting everybody. No, no, I'm not really even interested in that story at all. But there's another relationship that gets hidden behind the, the you know, the fog and the dust kicked up by all of those battles, which is that Christianity eventually became the religion of the Romans in a way that kind of frustrated where it, the direction it seemed to be going in, right? And let me put it to you like this. Now, in, in your history, you've covered like the rise of Islam and partly the history of Islam. And if you compare it to the history of Christianity after Constantine, you notice some very striking differences. And I will, you probably didn't know that we were getting into a comparison between Christianity and Islam, but it actually, it serves to, to highlight what exactly happened under, let's say under Constantine, I'm going to simplify a little bit here. So Islam created its own civilization, its own state, right? Its own political ideologies. There wasn't one there to receive it. Now, obviously, it picked up things from the Roman Empire, the Sasanian Empire, you know, reform, reformatted them or whatever. But it didn't emerge within an existing organized society that had its own laws and social structures and everything that it just kind of slotted into. And, and that state then continued carrying on, right? It created its own civilization with the result that in many ways, when you're studying like the history of Muslim peoples, their Muslim identity is primary. And it's very difficult to, to find um, like state identities or, you know, national ones or ethnic ones apart from the Arab, non-Arab distinction, which kind of in the initial centuries that kind of merged with being a Muslim. It, it opened up later on, right? So you're studying the history of the caliphate and there's this primary Muslim identity, and then it kind of breaks down into these regional lordships and warlords having their own little states or mercenary armies or whatever. But it remains very primary. You have to get Islam in very, very different cultures, like farther in, into East Asia, right? Um, or later on in history, when 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 you start to get like national or local ethnic identities or wherever, kind of breaking it into pieces. But like even today, if you look at the Middle East, it, countries like Iraq or Syria or, you know, Jordan or Egypt or whatever, they, they, to a certain degree, they kind of struggle to articulate their national distinctiveness apart from the sort of common Muslim, Arab, right? I mean, they do, but it's not at all like Germany and France, for mm. example, yeah. right? Um, and the part of the reason for that is exactly what we'll be talking about. Because if you look at Christian writing before Constantine, especially like look at Eusebius, for example, like he, before Constantine becomes emperor in the East, Eusebius has a long career as a writer and, um, you know, theorist of Christian things. It seems that Christian thinkers were aiming at that kind of 
total civilization. In other words, we're going to be Christians and like nothing else, right? It's not like when you convert to Christianity, you become a Christian Greek or a Christian Roman or a Christian Egyptian or a Christian Phoenician. That, that's not the concept because being a Greek or Phoenician or Roman in the Roman Empire entails being also participant in the religions of those groups. There's no way to separate out the religion from belonging to the group in general. Uh, like most ancient people don't have that concept and neither did the Christians. So the idea is when you convert to Christianity, you give up, you know, Zeus or Jupiter or Baal or, you know, you know, Ra or whatever. You can't effectively continue to be part of those groups. You're now a Christian. Right. And Eusebius describes this as a kind of total identity. In other words, Christians have their their God and Lord or King or whatever it was Christ. And they have their own, you know, institutions like the church and their own laws like, you know, Christian uh, commandments and so forth. They have their own beliefs, their own social structures. And he doesn't ever give the sense that the future that he expects is going to be one where um, other kinds of people just become Christian. Oh, it'd be great if we had some Christian Romans and Christian Persians and Christian what? No, no, no. They're just going to be Christian. And then the language, maybe they speak different languages, is kind of incidental, right? But they have a, a sort of total conception of the community and, you know, that encompasses religion and organization and their laws and so forth. And that's what didn't happen, right? What happened instead is that in the compromise that was worked out under Constantine and his successors is that Christianity just became the religion of the Romans. And it did not take over the culture the way it wanted to, right? And you've noticed this. I mean, you've talked about this sometimes and we'll, we'll get into this, right? Um, but it was it became something that was slotted into the Roman order as a part of it. And later on in the fourth century, especially after the Battle of Adrianople, Christian writers in the empire, which is now their like, like their people get to rule it, they even develop these kind of xenophobic Roman tropes about barbarians, right? So in the past, before Constantine, the barbarian angle was like ameliorated. Uh, like Christian authors would 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 sometimes highlight it. Like they're not coming from the standpoint of Greek philosophy. They're coming from the standpoint of barbarian wisdom because God actually revealed His truth to these barbarians, like the ancient Hebrews, and the the New Testament. Sorry, the, the the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament are you know by Greek standards not very impressive texts, um, and and they, they owned that, right? They owned it and they tried to ameliorate it. And they were talking about, you know, Christianity is something that transcends the Roman Empire, that it encompasses all people, not, not just a... But after the settlement, we'll just call it the settlement, right, with Constantine, they become a lot more kind of Romanocentric and like barbarians are bad. And, you know, they kind of align with the interests of the Roman state. Um, so that's roughly what happens. And this is not a triumph. This is an, a mutual accommodation, right? 
yes, the empire becomes Christian, officially so, and helps to eradicate alternatives to Christianity, not all of them, but or and not very successfully, but that's its official stance. But at the same time, the Christian institutions have to settle for a lot less than it seems they were aiming for originally. And mm. they just become, you know, another part of the another part of a much, much bigger picture. This is it. This is now a complete tangent. But of course, having studied the origins of Islam, exactly what you say, where you see because they've created a world empire, the religion now gets folded around that. Well, you know, yes. therefore war is part of our religious practice to some extent it's interesting just to ponder this is <laughs> this is a completely different discussion but what would a christian caliphate look like because if your if your principle is thou shalt not kill and you should give away your property and you should and so on it's difficult to see how you then create a state structure from from that kind of philosophy well i mean you you can in the sense that i mean there have always been christian empires you know, it's always been very difficult to control Christian violence. So, so that's not inherently a problem. But if you're talking about origins, it's an interesting question because Islam originates in a military, you know, campaign or a number of them, which is just by the nature of, you know, events impossible for early Christians to do like that. That that just wasn't in the cards. Um, and precisely because the movement was expanding within the historically, by historical standards, peaceful environment of the Roman Empire, they could <laughs> emphasize that part of their religion. Um, you know, the peaceful, the, the turning the other cheek, the not, you know, not um, resisting the persecutors and so forth, and, in part because they had no choice. But as soon as they also take over the apparatus of the state, they behave exactly as the Roman state had always behaved. Like it, it doesn't, right? Um, so there's the, the the interesting part about Christian history in that sense is those that early period when they don't have access to power and are living in a relatively peaceful environment, and so they can talk about, uh, you know, the the Sermon on the Mount kind of side of Christianity. Once they're an empire with armies then it's smite the barbarians and so forth, right? I mean, you've read these Byzantine texts, right, that are that praise the emperor for slaughtering barbarians just like Jesus did. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, let's get into uh, what did happen then. Um, what Can you explain to the listeners in more detail what you see as the Roman religion? So what Christianity became? Yeah, so this is the part of the story that's been left out, right? Christianity's always been there and it's always triumphed. And paganism is always there and it's always, you know, been defeated or whatever. But paganism is generally identified with like Greek cults. And no one pays any attention to Roman religion, but it's actually one of the key concepts here. Because the Romans, you know, they started out as one among many other people of the Mediterranean, and they had their own religion. They had their own cults. They had their own priesthoods and priestly colleges and, you know, the do's and don'ts of every religion. But what happens during, especially the third century, but even earlier, is that this Roman religion in a certain sense becomes globalized 
because the Roman people are globalized, right? So when you make all the free inhabitants of the empire into Roman citizens, as the Emperor Caracalla does in 212, ipso facto, their religions become Roman religions because they're now Romans. And the Roman religion is whatever Romans are doing, you know, for the gods. And Caracalla actually, even in his edict, like he argues that that's why he did it. That he, I mean, we have a papyrus fragment of his edict only, and it's hard to know what, what we don't have and whether he's being sincere or, or rhetorical or whatever. But his argument was that he had just escaped a murderous plot and he wanted, you know, as many Romans as possible to thank the, the Roman gods on his behalf. And so he made everybody into a Roman so that they could all go and the Roman gods would be super pleased. Right. Um, so he has this conception of, a, of an expanded uh, community of Roman religion. And during the course of the third century, um, when you start having, you know, more intense persecutions, especially toward the end and so forth, the emperors are talking constantly about Roman religion or, more interestingly, Roman religions and how Christianity is incompatible with them, right? And in a certain sense, here's why. Because the Romans, just like the Christians, had the same conception about religion in the sense that it was part of the the law this is what they called it the, the the use or the lex is the law of a group um, like it's governing cultural norms right including its written norms those are just part of uh, its written laws sorry those are part of the cultural norms of a group which include religion so if you're a greek it is incumbent on you to do greek religious things and so forth for a, a Roman, a Phoenician, a Scythian, an Egyptian, and so forth. You can't take it out. And so when they all become religion, um, sorry, when they all become Romans, what it means is that both their religions are part of Roman religion and the reverse. And Christians who refuse to participate in any of these rituals um, are therefore put in a very problematic position vis-a-vis -vis the Roman Empire and their own citizenship status because they are required as citizens to do what the emperor asked them to do, um, pray to the gods, offer sacrifices, whatever. This had always been a case in Roman religion, even in the Republic. You know, there were times when everybody had to go out and pray and sacrifice or whatever, and they did. And there wasn't a problem in a sense because you didn't have like people who had to um, who, who, wanted, who refused to do that on some sort of ground of principle or belief. So what happens in the very short period between you know, Diocletian and Galerius, the persecutors, and Theodosius at the end of the fourth century, who makes Christianity the only, like the official religion of all Romans, that all Romans must conform to this version of Christianity, he says, in the Edict of Thessalonica in 380, um, you have this movement that takes place entirely within the Roman legal structure. So it's all a bunch of laws, ranging from Diocletian's law, uh, that a series of laws to persecute Christianity as something antithetical to Roman religion, and therefore, by in his lights, illegal. So you have 
pagans persecuting Christians in that way. Then in 311, you have Galerius, um, Diocletian's sort of second in command and successor. <clears throat> he tries the persecution for a while. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And he issues this edict in 311 in Sertica, where he says, eh, he says, well, that didn't work. Which It's very rare for a Roman emperor to say something like that. Anyway, he says it, it doesn't work. So fine. It's one of the most passive aggressive edicts of a Roman emperor. <laughs> fine, whatever. And he says, we will allow the Christians to have their own rights and their right and they can practice those alongside those of the romans and their religion and he says you know even though in the past it seemed that the christians were setting up their own law like basically like a separatist you know group or not a state because they don't have state institutions but it's a small step from one to the other so he says fine so it's like he creates this dual track of Romans and Christians kind of, okay, they're both worshiping their own gods and we'll leave them alone. Edict of Milan, two years later, 313, with Constantine and Licinius, so Galerius dies a few days after that edict, Constantine and Licinius issue the Edict of Milan, which is not, it's the first and only point of balance where, where it's like freedom and equality for everyone in terms of religion, because what Galerius had allowed was basically toleration. He's like, eh, I don't like these Christians. And I thought, I used to think they were possible traitors or whatever, but I'm going to, fine, you can do whatever you want. That's toleration. Uh, you know, that's not equality or, or liberty. Constantine and Licinius, the Edict of Milan, is an edict of like the uh, emperors are not taking a stand. They're saying, you know, both whatever, and they both enjoy the rights of the law and so forth. And they, they don't um, lean on one side or the other. After the defeat of Licinius, Constantine immediately reverts to toleration again. Only this time it's Christian toleration of pagans. So he sends out these edicts where he's saying, well, um, you know, it would be great if all Romans adhered to the true faith. He doesn't name it, but and we know that, you know, that all of our most of our subjects are like still worship, you know, false gods or they're, they're in error, but fine, whatever. <laughs> he's, he's the same as Galerius. It's just that the script has flipped. Right. And so for now, Constantine, in other words, he's kind of like defining Roman religion in terms of the correct religion, which is his religion. And everyone else should get with the program. And okay, this goes back and forth during the fourth century. But finally, with Theodosius in 380, we get the Edict of Thessaloniki, where he says, the all of our subjects need to, you know, adhere to the religion that was given to the Romans by the Apostle Peter, you know, case closed. And it's the same conception of Roman religion straight through. It just changes, the emperors are just changing what they designate by it. And through this process, which has a number of like, uh, you know, auxiliary processes that, that go along with it, they basically turn Christianity into something that they can slot into the Roman imperial and social order as its religion and just carry on. 
with very, very little changes to the whole structure. Even the structure of designating otherness and, and so far uh, so forth. In other words, um, Christianity used to be called a superstition when it was being pro uh, persecuted. The flip, the, they just flipped the script and it's now paganism that's the superstition that's being outlawed after Constantine. Like it, it's the same structure of understanding what good and bad religion is, about the overall order in which it's embedded. Nothing changes with regard to that, right? Emperors need to be on the good side of the gods or God. There are ways of doing that, namely making sure that your subjects pray on your behalf and, and the common good. And all the emperors are trying to do that. So it's the same thing. It's just that Christianity has now become the Roman religion. And in that regard, you know, whatever dreams you, the likes of Eusebius had for it being a total culture are gone because it's been co-opted. Um, there's an alternative perspective that I think Constantine got in the West from an exact contemporary of Eusebius. This is a, a, a fellow called Lactantius. And Constantine had employed Lactantius at his court. And Lactantius was, he was a Latin um, speaking uh, Christian thinker, theologian, whatever. And he had basically argued not for a self-standing total culture kind of Christianity, but Christianity as the apex of Roman culture. In other words, he had argued in a work that he dedicated to Constantine that Christianity was like all of the good stuff that Cicero had wanted for the Respublica. Right? Like it would make the Roman order better as its kind of capstone. And that's the understanding that Constantine had. It's the understanding that all, I mean, secular-minded Romans, right, even if they were Christian, you know what I mean, had. They weren't like looking to change their entire culture or the social order or its values or its laws or its economy or any part of it. They just changed what they understood um, by Roman religion. And so later on, you get references. I mean, Christianity has its own name, but it could also be called the Roman religion. Like once that was it, like after the fifth century or so, it's just called the Roman religion in many texts. Um, and I think that's the, that's the interesting story for me, which is one of, it's one essentially of continuity. It's a continuity of understanding of religion and continuity of structures, laws, and institutions. So that's the primary sense in which I understand the Romanization of Christianity, though there are many others that we can talk about too. Yeah. No, it's it's such an interesting topic. So I suppose to bring it home to people practically, we might think that a pagan Roman society had a very different moral framework for for everyday behavior or for behavior in government. Or you just you were kind of talking about it just then about it not changing the economy or the or the way the government operated or thought about things. So, do we see much change at all? after Christianity has been adopted as the Roman religion? Or do people largely go on behaving exactly as they did before? Well, what did you see when you... <laughs> um, but, but, by the way, before you answer that, um, so there was a, a great um, historian of the later Roman Empire called um, A.H.M. Jones, um, Arnold Hugh Martin Jones. And 
I read somewhere that he was asked once uh, by a colleague, so what difference did Christianity make uh, in the end? And his answer was absolutely none. Hmm. Now, he he said that to be provocative, Hmm. um, right? But surely we don't mean that people were now going to churches rather than to temples or that they believe in the one God of the Bible rather than the many gods. That's not what we're asking about. Those are... um, those are a given when you're saying what what does accepting Christianity entail? We're asking for things beyond that, like what you said, mm. right? Um, I mean, have you seen in, in all of the history that you've covered? Have you seen, for example, the Roman armies behaving in ways that the ancient Roman armies didn't behave? No, um, no, not at all. And I think. I mean, I think one of the things here is sort of that Christianity was not uh, taking over a polygamous society or something where we could say, as you all know, on day one, everyone was doing X and on day two, everybody had to change. And, they, you know, and we see, you know, so there's a there's a similarity in structure. I mean, this is part of obviously being born into the Roman world. And so people accepting Roman norms, even right. as they become Christians, I right. think, uh, you know, obviously uh, starting the podcast in, in 476, you know, I was very rapidly into the era of Justinian where, you know, Theodora's behavior is, is treated as scandalous for an empress, but not sinful in a way that Procopius can say, how could someone be a pantomime dancer or a, an escort or whatever you want to say? He doesn't question that that was going on in society. And I mean, when I, I was even more interested when I covered John Chrysostom, which obviously was much earlier in this process, but his, his preaching to his congregation was, was a matter of persuasion. You ought to be behaving better than you are. Yeah. And then five years later, the same sermon is saying a very similar thing. So again, yeah. he's not expecting that people will actually have transformed their lives necessarily. Yeah. He 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 is very much like a modern Christian preacher, expecting that people are sinning yeah. and living in sinful ways. Exactly. And that is, so that was one of the main sort of accomplishments of reading patristic texts of like in the course of the 20th century, which is not taking them at face value. No not as projecting their aspirations and values onto the rest of society, but rather reading them against, if you're a social historian, reading them against the grain as actually telling us what is going on in society, which was not to the liking of people like um, John Chrysostom, right? So yes, it's, it's safer to assume that people like on the street, in their private lives and whatever, are doing precisely the things that he's condemning um, rather than that this is a society that's rallied behind his kind of very austere and rather extreme, you know, version of, of Christian morals. But by the way, John Chrysostom is someone who's still trying to make, to affect that transformation, right? He wants, I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but you can think of it this way. He wants to turn the Roman Empire, and certainly Constantinople or Antioch, where he was before, into a big monastery. Like he wants people to embrace these kinds of, um, you know, radical Christian ideals to transform their inner selves, like dr- drastically, and not 
necessarily to like give up marriage entirely or or property or wealth or whatever, but to practice them in ways that were, you know, basically unrecognizable to most people, like in how, you know, austere and strict um, they had to be. And what he tells us is again and again and again, that he's just failing, that they're not doing that. And you, you know, get to Procopius exactly as you said, and he's describing a society that's all about text and violence and vulgar entertainment and money and gold and greed and horse races and games and you know like like it's almost like nothing has changed right except that you know people might take a few minutes out of their busy lives to go to into a church and pray and light a candle and then they step right back out into the flow of whatever sordid things they're doing right and you know, I, it's not as if people are internally torn, I think. Like, they know they're doing something immoral, but are, and are going to church, and John Chrysostom is like, yeah, exhorting them to be better Christians, and then they go home and they have crises of conscience. I personally don't think so. I, I think they enjoyed both parts of that equation, <laughs> I think they they love to hear him rail against all of these indecencies and whatever, and then went about their lives as they did before. I mean, I think people do that sort of thing exactly today. Um, you know, we live on these different wavelengths. And anyway, to make a long story short, for a very long time, this a, a settlement with the new religion didn't change anything in the structure of the Roman economy and how it operated or, you know, other than it brought the church into itself, right? So the church now has properties and it starts to behave like a property owner in many ways. Um, a big one, uh, but not one that had, um, not one that was able to leverage its economic strength um, in any serious way, by the way. So when they talk about the church being the largest landowner, that doesn't translate into actual power for a number of reasons that we could get into. You know, the church had definitely lands, but they were they were kind of broken up in very small regional parcels um, under the control of, you know, hundreds of bishops and so forth. It, it, it wasn't a, a unified force in that way. Um, so it doesn't change the economy. It does not change the social structure. It doesn't change the laws about the social structure. It doesn't change how the political system worked, not at all. Um, the position of the emperor. I mean, in other words, emperors always were religious figures and kind of drenched in uh, religious imagery and associations with these gods and that gods. That just carries on and they just swap out the gods, right, for the Christian god. That That's all that happens. In fact, I've even found prayers that were used to, you know, for emperors where they're that continue to be used exactly in the same way, except they switch the word gods to God, right? Same thing for the armies. Armies just, they swap out the religious symbols that they have. They used to have them before. They have them after the settlement. It's just a different symbol, but whatever. The armies don't behave any differently at all. There's minimal impact on the laws. Now, we're not talking about laws about the church or about the clergy we're talking right when people say did christianity influence the laws what you're really meaning is were christian values imposed on society via the laws right 
And that is very, very minimal uh, for centuries. You, you have to get much later until they even make an effort at doing that. And Justinian tries some things and actually in his own laws admits that most of them failed. And yeah, this is the interesting thing. When Justinian thinks about regulating society uh, along Christian lines, what does he mean? Well, some things about sex, which, you know, you know, Christians are in most periods of history kind of um, worried about. Um, some things about gambling and blasphemy, like, you know, foul mouths and stuff like that. And like, really? Like, if you look at the Roman Empire from like a genuinely Sermon on the Mount kind of perspective, those are the problems? Like, not the massive inequalities and violence and oppression that's driven by, you know, greed and the whole gold economy that you have and the violence of the armies and like that those are just not those are off the table we don't we don't change any of that right so yeah the impact was pretty minimal and so when you when you think that okay this new religion was like a very important part of the culture except when it comes to the economy the social order the political system and the armies then you're like, oh, all right. What exactly did it change, right? And so there you start looking at, and obviously we're not talking about people who like dedicated their lives to religion, like monks and so forth. Though that is a real thing that happened, right? So, and it happened because these people took the kind of moral, you know, prescriptions of the religion to heart and realized that, wait a minute, Roman society is not changing or not changing fast enough for our liking, and we're just going to go off into the desert or on a mountain or in some caves in order to live, you know, the life that we want. So monasticism, its existence in a kind of, in a way proves what I'm saying, that those people did not think that they were living in a properly Christian society and had to go off and do it. And th this is what I find so fascinating about the Christian Roman Empire is that in religions where, like, it's sorry, in societies where the kind of bearded, priestly, religious crowd is in control, usually the women are going to end up, you know, locked away or covered up or whatever. And that does not happen in the Christian Roman Empire. It's the exact opposite that happens, right? The bearded people who are afraid of women, they have to go off. You go off into the <laughs> desert and live there now, right? And the women can, you know, continue to have their their rights as before and and expand some of them, in fact. Um, so this is, you know, because bishops and priests had very little social power. Uh, strike that. That's not correct. I mean, social power they did, but it was a soft power. In other words, they had control over their employees, obviously, people employed by the church. And they had, you know, their their properties, though they were very restricted in how they could use their economic assets um, to, to the degree where they actually didn't have a lot of money to throw around. I mean, someone like the Bishop of Alexandria did, um, but still not that much. Um, and beyond that, a bishop could not order anybody to do anything, right? Um, 
they couldn't even order you to go to church. Well, you, if you don't want to go to church, you don't go to church. Um, you want to spend your life just drinking in bars and going to the games and whatever. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing they can do about it, right? By the way, the same is true about even like women. Women could be socially or legally controlled by the men in their lives, uh, but not by the local priest. Like, you know, he could he could denounce you and shame you, you know, what we call the the the, the bully pulpit, I mean, literally. But it's up to other people to take matters into their own hands if they're going to do anything about it. Otherwise, you know, you're just you're just a voice that has authority, which is, yeah, it's something. It's not nothing. So this is by no means a theocracy, not, like not even close um, in that regard. So that that's what I, I mean, that's the conclusion that I came to, at least for the early period. You know, I mean, things change a little once you get into the middle period. They There's a little bit more of an embrace of, um, you know, what they took to be rigorous Christian moral standards in in society at large again voluntarily i mean that you can't really impose this kind of thing very easily um but it it does seem to be a little bit more of a kind of practicing christian society but it's still not even like again things like the social structure the political system the imperial position the armies and the economy <laughs> are not really affected much by it right mm. yeah yeah and those later changes are, are in part a reaction to the massive political change in the in the Roman world, I suppose. Because you you kind of talk about intellectuals being interested in pagan things right up to the time of Heraclius. And after that, those people sort of disappear more from our sources and and the suffering being visited upon the Roman people is more sort of physically apparent to people, I suppose. Yes, there there's a sense in which there was more of a social turn to religion for understanding their situation. But this was in the context of, uh, I mean, if we're talking about the seventh and eighth centuries of a really extreme, um, well, collective poverty um, mm -hmm. and insecurity uh, compared to before. Um, I, I don't think that even the plague in the sixth century had these kinds of consequences. I think they just carried on. I don't mm -hmm. think the plague had serious uh, impact on like social values or or the culture at large. I, there's a debate about that going on now. Mm. But what happened in the seventh and early eighth centuries that was, I think, much more traumatic. Yes. Well, let's let's take a detour into the law because you you've talked about the role of it, kind of imperial decrees and legislation, yeah. um, kind of moving the church, the Christian church, into the state. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that because i haven't talked about the legal system on the podcast in much detail and uh, in our last episode we talked about one of the parts of the the personality of the roman government was uh, providing justice that was one of the things it was keen to be seen to be doing at least um so can we talk about the law in roman society beyond just listing what was criminal behavior what what else was the function of the law in Roman society? Yeah, so to link that to what we were talking about, let's stress at the outset that the settlement took place largely through legal means, right? So all of those edicts that I mentioned that disestablished the old Roman religion and 
newly established the new Roman religion. That that all happened within a very specific legal framework through laws. At the same time, the church was brought, you know, on board via laws, like laws that designated as a um a, a kind of corporation, right? It's uh, about the lands that it could have, about the you know positions and rights and perks and duties of its personnel from you know, bishops down to priests to whatever, right? So it was heavily regulated by law as to what it could do. This is how the Roman state brings institutions and social classes on board. And so that's where I think we should look for, you know, the importance of law in this society. And I think it's been to a certain degree misunderstood. Um, not entirely, but when you when you start seeing debates about law in the Roman Empire, they very quickly turn to like the the penal system and the right like punishments for crimes like as if like the kind of law and order law and the question then quickly becomes one of well were these punishments enforced and how do we know and you start looking through sources to see how like the penal system worked on the ground like what well, you know and it very quickly, I, I think this approach trivializes what Roman law does. Um, because now, obviously, also, scholars are very well aware that without Roman law, there wouldn't have been like property in the Roman Empire. And without property, there wouldn't be anything else. Um, and so I'm going to use that as a wedge to open up an even bigger picture. Because not only, uh, so Roman law is primarily concerned with property in you know, what it is. Um, who has it, who is property in the case of slaves, right? How it can be passed along uh, through inheritance or, you know, gifts or will, whatever. So it's overwhelming preoccupations with property and property is really the foundation of this whole society in, in, in those ways. And in fact, John Chrysostom admits this. I mean, he, he keeps talking about property and and there are many places where he says that ultimately, like all of his concerns come down to concerns about property, because he says everything that we do, we do via the laws about, you know, property and who can do what and so forth. All right. So I'm going to suggest that law in this empire does a whole lot more, too. In fact, it is the structure of the social order. That's what it is. It maintains this entire social order, creating some parts of it out of nothing that is, there are certain elements of the social order that whose existence depends on the laws that create them and regulate them. And there are also parts of the society that are that pre-existed this order, but are brought into it, like, for example, the church. The church pre-existed the settlement, but once Constantine brought it on board, it got enmeshed in the same sort of legal system, right? And so think about something like the soldiers of the Roman army. The soldiers of the Roman army are, are a concept that doesn't, you know, make any sense apart from the laws, the law of person that designates what a soldier is and what your rights are and so forth, right? And in the early period, we're, we're talking about, uh, well, you know, number, I mean, it varies, the estimates vary, but, you know, maybe 400,000, I mean, across the entire empire, maybe more. And that's just the men add their families, their women, right, who are also part of the economic order of soldiers and their dependents and all that. And pretty soon we're talking about, you know, a few million people. 
um, out of a population of, you know, I don't know, maybe 50 um, who are, for all intents and purposes, their social class and economic status are just part of that order. Okay, so how does it work? Well, you can see this in the Theodosian Code, um, or you can see it in the, in the Code of Justinian too, but you can see it very clearly in the Theodosian Code, which is in part organized around different social groups, right? Different social classes. And the laws in each category are laws by which the emperors regulated these groups, basically by defining their responsibilities and their duties. And so we're talking about the following kinds of groups, uh, senators, uh, city councilors, um, soldiers, uh, clergy of all ranks, right? Um, dependent farmers. So those, so farmers who were tied to lands in a very particular way that it's called a colonnade. It's a very technical area of research with, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly, um, well, we know the laws, but we're still trying to find out exactly, um, for lack of a better term, how it felt to be in that position, like just how restricted it, it was. Anyway, um, and, you know, a number of other groups of professional guilds and so forth. So these all, these are the structure of Roman society. Um, and they are defined by these laws that have um, a very limited kind of toolkit. At their, so the emperors, you know, when, you, when you're when you in a Roman emperor, and you're trying to do social policy. There's only so much you can do. I mean, <laughs> this isn't right. And, it, and in a certain sense, even modern governments are kind of limited in the social engineering that they can do. Like in the U.S., it's pretty much coming down to like tax credits. <laughs> anyway, um, so the emperors can give you some exemptions from some things and they can give you some perks. And these are not huge things, right? So like soldiers and clergy are like exempt from um, these kind of um, surcharges on, on taxes. They're like, they pay the basic tax, but they don't have to pay the extraordinary additional, not extraordinary, but the add-on taxes that everyone else did or perform different kinds of labor for the state, like maintaining the roads or providing mules or whatever. Um, so there are perks about which courts you can be tried in and tried by whom, for what crimes. You're like, okay. So the emperors have this little bucket of perks and responsibilities, and they kind of allocate these here and there to, you know, favored groups, to define a group, whatever. And that's how all of these groups sort of come into existence in a way, or, or that's how they're defined in the society. And here's the fascinating thing. If you look at the non-legal sources, historical sources, narratives, etc., you find those same groups. <laughs> like there's a perfect correspondence. It's not like um the you know the, there are all of these different weird kinds of social groups out there that the law just doesn't see or can't doesn't regulate or whatever. One such appeared, it was the monastic movement. And for a long time it was kind of invisible to the law like you know Eventually, the emperors got around to regulating it. So it was brought on board. Uh, they kind of passed that on to the the bishops via canon law. So canon law comes in to mostly regulate um, monks and monasteries. And so they're brought on board too, essentially. And so this correspondence for me is very important 
uh, because it means that the the law is the kind of the scaffold of the social order. It, it kind of maintains it, creates part of it, brings other parts on board, and right, it's kind of this clearinghouse for who gets to do what. And when you look at the actual society, it by and large functions that way. And so I think that's what it's doing. It's maintaining the different social groups and their relative status and their perks. Much more important function than, you know, who who gets their nose cut off or what crime. Like that, that's relatively trivial by comparison. Um, and and so so that's what I oh, let me add also that another set of groups that come to be defined by the law in this way are uh, religious deviants, as it were, from the emperor's point of view, right? So heretics, pagans, and Jews are increasingly defined through these legal categories with more and more restrictions put on them. So they get defined by the emperors as social classes with a particular legal status, disadvantageous, right? So, yeah. Um, so that's why I think the law is so important. Um, in 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 some respects, it's even more important than the religion. It encompasses it, and and is relatively impervious to influence by it. At least not until much later, because that's kind of what defines someone in the society and defines any recourse they have against kind of arbitrary yes power. Not just recourse, but like who you are in relation to other people. Yeah. Yeah. So how would we see this legal system at work? I mean, this is where I feel I come up against the absence of sources um, that, you know, listeners will uh, be familiar with the Republican Roman system because we have more information about Cicero than almost anyone else, you know, any other character from Roman history. So we have this very clearly defined sense of a, a law court in, in the way it's familiar to us today. Whereas if so, someone says to me, what was it like in Byzantium in, in 950? I would say, I'm I'm not sure. But how would you see that functioning in the sources? Right. So now you're talking about like applied law, law on the ground, right? Yeah. That Because you mentioned the courts and we can talk about that. But um, just just to repeat, I think you're seeing the law in action every time a text describes someone as a senator, as a soldier, as a city yes. councillor, as whatever, because it's it's designating what the law calls his quote status or fortuna, that is his station in life. Yeah, and from that term, you can extrapolate a lot about who this person is in society. You can do that by looking at the laws, and they give you a sense. Okay, so close parentheses. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right that we we just don't have that much evidence um, for like courtroom uh, the courtroom experience of the law. Now, having said that, um, you know, most even today, most legal disputes don't get to trial, right? So they're settled. Um, in one way or another, whether by prosecutor or, or with an arbiter between, you know, two, two rival parties. Um, and this is probably what's happening also uh, because, and, and we do know there are lots of provisions. So because as we talked in the previous episode, the 
you know, the emperors are concerned for like justice and to be seen as providing justice. And as a result, they do get like floods of requests from their subjects for justice or, or legal adjudication. And it's more business than they can handle sometimes. So they try to, um, you know, offshore it uh, to various parties. And so one set of parties is arbitration, like, you know, you find someone who's mutually acceptable to both and go go do, do it that way before you bother us. Um, and another one was through the church. Um, so often acting as an arbiter or in place of a court, you can go to a bishop if both parties agree and so forth. Um, sometimes um, people will just go to like the local holy man <laughs> I was going to say, uh, yeah. just think, as you said it, I was like, I suppose through hagiography, we see a bit of arbitration, real or imagined, going yes, on. Yes, exactly. And from the, I don't think that emperors ever actively recommended that as an option, but I'm sure they were happy that people were going there rather than tying up the courts. Um, now, when you mentioned Cicero, right, you, you're alluding to a period in the late Republic, which was politically very unstable. And a lot of his speeches are, like his courtroom speeches, are part of this instability where these were like major scandals and in a, in a period when the state is just being rocked by, you know, um, all civil wars and you name it. And, you know, the Byzantium that you know is generally much more stable than that. So you don't have these like big political courtroom dramas or whatever. These Most of these things are handled quietly um, or much more quietly uh, at the court or wherever. But we do know that average people are using the law and the court system. And how do we know this? Uh, well, from a number of sources, some early, some middle to late. The early ones are papyri in Egypt, uh, where we actually have our, um, the mini archives from which we can infer or uh, reconstruct the legal history of certain cases and some people. And so, and we know that very ordinary kinds of people, uh, even like those who are socially right above the rank of slaves, are actually using courts and filing, you know, motions and complaints against officials and whatever women are using the system a lot. Um, so we do know that's happening. Um, we don't have court transcripts, as it were, I don't think. Uh, but documents that are about court proceedings, so we can tell. And then from the middle and late Byzantine periods, we have, um, well, we have this document from the 11th century called the Pira, which is a compilation of summaries of legal opinions or verdicts given by a judge in Constantinople in the 11th century, Estathios Romeos. We have a new edition of that text now. It's a pretty big text. And it's basically, you know, uh, uh, an anthology of cases that came before him. Um, I mean, a lot of the text is that, where you can see just the sheer range of people who are using his courtroom. We Now, you don't have speeches for and against. <laughs> like, you don't have that kind of thing, right? But you do have summaries of, well, this party said and then that party said. Um, and yeah, because he's a high profile judge in Constantinople, many of his, um, you know, plaintiffs and defendants are high ranking people, um, but not all of them. Some of them are very humble people. Um, so 
once we begin to study that text and we have a German translation only right now, so <laughs> someone will have to put it into English and then you will see a flood of scholarship coming out of that. Yeah. Um, and we have some later collections of opinions by bishops in the 13th century after the uh, fall to the Latins, where a lot of um, local uh, legal disputes were handled by bishops, especially in Nafaktos and Akrid. And, and so we can, again, but those are similar, like they're they're just little summaries or the, they're, they're, the, they're the decision issued by the bishop. And if he re, uh, represents the positions of the two parties accurately, fine. If not, we're at his mercy in a way. Uh, but yeah, so you you do when you do get these glimpses, you see a, a, a sort of vigorous, you know, legal scene where with, with with people pressing their rights and filing complaints against others and against officials and so forth. So it does happen, but it's not the sort of thing that produces uh, Cicero. Yeah. Because it was a functional society, you see. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know, this is one of the things I try to bring out in the podcast is often we extrapolate from a very limited number of sources, particularly in the middle centuries. So one we, we have is this book of advice from a, a, a landowner called Kekav Menofs. I've done this bonus episode on that. And the work that modern scholars have done like Leonora Neville on his text and others is to get the sense that he thinks it's who you know that matters. That if if you know someone at court, if you're friendly with someone who has the ear of someone who has the ear of the emperor, that's the way to get yourself defended against, you know, unfair claims and so on. I mean, he's not saying the law, the letter of the law doesn't matter, but he is, let's say, saying who you know matters. I mean, that perhaps is not an unusual situation for, for a pre-modern society. Um, is it any different now? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not yeah, trying to be yeah. glib. No, no. But I mean, of course, he's right. Mm. Yes. I if if I were involved in a legal dispute, then as now, I suppose, I mean, so now we, we want to think that our institutions work impersonally and fairly. Mm. but we all know they don't. Um, and the real problem is when you're engaged in like an asymmetrical or a completely unequal legal dispute, mm. right? Um, so if two neighbors of equal, roughly equal social status and wealth um, have a dispute um, and neither of them are like high ranking people or very important people and they go to, the court system is generally you know, going to treat them fairly. I mean, not fairly, but at least not in the way that kick off mental spheres. Both today and then, I imagine. Um, but if there's an inequality involved in the in the dispute, oh, I I would not I would not trust the like. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm speaking for the American legal system here. Um, the one, oh, the other one I know is the Greek legal system. And neither of them strike me as particularly, you know, fair or sound. Or there, there is absolutely no way that you can really win uh, uh, even a fully justified lawsuit against a major corporation. Like, how, how would you even, like, 
it's it they 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 will just tie you up in litigation for years and ruin you financially even though you're the victim in the case right mm-hmm. um so I, yeah i i wouldn't want us to insist on this kind of pre-modern and modern as if the modern is some sort of rational fair bureaucracy that mm-hmm. can't be uh, you know influenced by, by you know personal connections and so on I, I, obviously it can um and so I think, you know, Kekov Menos is the gives us the kind of little cynical window into all this. But he's not alone. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you have all of these preachers, like getting back to John Chrysostom, right, who are railing against these kinds of abuses. And you know, he's concerned with like what greed does to the soul, right? So he's not so concerned about like, you know, social justice in the courtroom. <laughs> But he's concerned about it tangentially because he like the judge that takes the bribe is for him a problem less. It's a problem. So, yes, but it's less a problem because it corrupts the justice system and we need to have a, you know, a functional state, you know, justice system. But because it corrupts the soul of the judge and corrupts the soul of the briber and it right. And that's bad for their their virtue and therefore for the state of their soul and their prospects for salvation and so forth. Which, by the way, I can totally sympathize with that position. Like, yeah, that that is bad for you, I think. And and anyway, I mean, it, it's a it's a more virtue ethics kind of approach to these problems rather than a social policy approach mm. to the problem. Um, but I don't think it's I think it's legitimate for sure. You see this all over, though, mm. I mean hagiographies keep talking about bribes and people complained about the justice system. Yeah, sure. Well, and this is making me think of our conversation about the personality of government, that the emperors were keen to show themselves to be keeping their thumb on top of the rich to stop this from getting out of control. Exactly. That's what you're advertising to people. Yes. Yes. Because everyone was very suspicious that the system was rigged in favor of the rich and powerful Excuse me. That's precisely why the emperors keep insisting that they are kind of putting their thumb on the scale to even it out. Right. And there are all these stories that circulate that are mostly apocryphal of emperors who are approached in the street by someone who has, you know, been done wrong. And and they appeal like they cut through the institutions and go straight to the source. And it's like your your general stole my horse. He's like, well, fetch that guy here and let's interrogate him. Did you take his horse? And he's like, well, yeah, I took his horse. And yeah. So um, so the emperors wanted to be seen almost as a kind of way to cut through all of the red tape and provide real, like immediate justice. Yeah, yeah. They were very concerned about that. But isn't that also who you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um well, let's bring this back to Christianity for our final question. Um, you know, when I began the podcast, it was whatever it was, 25 years after the Council of Chalcedon. Chalcedon. Um, so we were getting into the Monophysites and that all those disputes, which meant, you know, I managed to skip the uh, Nestorians and the Arians and all of those things. I think that's what most people think of when they think of early Christianity in the Roman Empire is all these Christological controversies. So 
without going into all those <laughs> details, <laughs> um, I was obviously very interested in your observations and conclusions just about this issue. So can we talk a bit about why Christianity lent itself to sort of splintering into factions constantly and, and what was going on here sort of on the surface, but also under it with all these relentless disputes? Well, I still wonder about that myself. It's not like I have a very good answer. And you know what, like what really drives me mad, I mean, as a historian trying to understand things, is why they picked on the particular topics that they picked on to disagree about, right? Like, even if you were to assume, okay, it's a given that they're going to be disagreeing, it's a given that they're going to be heretical groups and whatever, why exactly is it about those topics, like specifically the the degree to which the quote substance of the son and the substance of the father are the same, similar, like, unlike, or once we've established that they're the same substance and the Trinity is in three parts though every word here is loaded, right? Like, and then one of those parts is conjoined with a human being who's Jesus Christ. And so you have the divine nature and the human, and how do they work? Like, why those questions, which are, like, if you read the New Testament, those are not the questions that, like, pop out at you, right? And just to give a wild, like, why were they not more concerned with, say, what happens to the human soul when you die, which they kind of left very vague and, you know, whatever, to the so vague that, you know, most Christians throughout history really don't understand how this is supposed to work, and they think that you're judged when you die. So, like, our popular culture now and since the Middle Ages is just full of, you know, this kind of idea that that heaven and hell are populated with people who died recently, right? No, like that's what the second judgment does. Like until then, in theory, your soul is like, quote, sleeping or sleeping in the bosom of Abraham or whatever. Like you're not, there's no judgment. Everyone will be judged all at once when, you know, Christ returns and the world ends. Mm. And yet this was left so undefined and like, I'm just, didn't this bother the, you know, didn't they worry more about that? I it, Anyway, it's just weird. Why the particular questions? Okay. But all of that assumes that they're going to be um, disagreeing and having controversies and councils and heretics and excommunications. Why did all of that happen? And I honestly, I, I really don't have a very good answer. Of course, a lot of this had started already before the settlement. So it's not something new. It just gets supercharged when you have imperial intervention and big councils now and and real legal consequences. Because before it was it was voluntary, like oh, we're disagreeing about theology, fine, I'll go just have a church over here and you, you go stand over there and we'll just and we'll just throw pamphlets at each other. <laughs> okay. Um, but what's what's going on even there is that they're really fighting over who gets to own and control the the brand name Christian, who's the real Christian, right? And they're very invested in that. So unlike other religions um, in the ancient world, Christians are really, really tied to their name. 
Um, I mean, there are parallels. They're not like, completely unique in that regard. But who is and who is not a Christian or a true Christian is a, just a little bit of an obsession. Uh, so when the martyrs are persecuted, and, you know, when they're about to be killed, they keep saying, you know, I'm a Christian. No, no, like, I'm asking you what tax district you're for. I'm a Christian. Oh, come on, like, you know, what's your date of birth? I am a Christian. It's like, hmm. okay. So they're very, very um, um, intent on it. Um, and in the controversies, what you see is constant efforts to brand the other side as not Christian so that, you know, you're left as the, you know, the, the true Christian. And you mentioned all of these groups, like Arians and historians and Monophysites and so on. In a certain sense, none of those groups ever existed because nobody ever called himself that. Those are all names that the winners branded the losers with, right? Um, and you, you did not want to be called an Arian. And in fact, we know people who were called Arians who objected to it because for one thing, Arian, Arius was just a priest in Alexandria and a bunch of bishops didn't want to be known after some you know little priest they'd never heard of before uh, from Alexandria. But also because what it means is that you're not a Christian. Christians are the one are the followers of Christ and Arians are the followers of Arius. In other words, they're not Christian. And that's the work that those labels do. If you were to do an anthropological study of these groups, if you were to go back in time and spend some time with them, you realize that they all have exactly the same homologous outlook, that they are all Christians, the true Christians, they are Orthodox Christians, and other group are all heretics and, you know, wrong. Um, so in part, these controversies are driven over, like, control of the message, control of the brand, of, of you know, the Christian name, which after the settlement is much more valuable brand because it's the one right that the emperors can can throw a lot of money and status and power at and so after constantine it's vital for any group to be the right true christian one because that's the one that gets the support of the emperor um and so that's that's kind of what they're fighting over is imperial um, the designation of their status as being the true Christian, which is precisely what Theodosius does in the Edict of Thessalonica that we that we mentioned. Um, so that's the kind of, you know, the the framework in which these Christian controversies are taking place. Um, you know, the 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 major players are are bishops, um, and there, of course, you get also a lot of personality conflict. Um, look. Not to get into the theological details, as you said, but when I looked at Nestorius and Cyril and their, you know, the writings of the one and the fragments of that survive of the other because his works were burned, uh, Nestorius, it, as a sort of amateur theologian, it, it was, mm, let's say, very difficult to understand where exactly they disagreed. And in fact, I find, I found both of them making concessions that were essentially what the other person was saying, right? I don't think that these are at all incompatible positions. They they both, if, you know, if they were giving their, the other one a charitable hearing, they would, they would, they would agree. I, I think they would agree. That's not, um, however, they were both, you know, relatively mm, acrimonious people um, and, you know, strong-willed and rather impatient with each other. Um, and one was super dangerous too. 
Um, and you could you can see you can sense that they just don't want to get along. They don't like each other for some reason. Um, so there's a lot of personal politics that that happens uh, here. Um, there are other reasons that people have alleged um, sort of structural, um, co not conflicts, but suspicion among the major uh, seas. In other words, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. I kind of don't think those were that important. Um, you know, I don't, anyway, but at times they were, but not not like a sort of permanent um, um, underlying structure that motivated these things. Now, Let's add also one very important fact. Very few people understood these controversies. Um, as I said, I, like I read through the writings of the main, you know, contestants about natures, and I can see them converging on a lot of points, except when they want to disagree. Um, most ordinary Christians couldn't possibly fathom what's going on. Most bishops didn't understand what was going on. They switched sides very often. Um, there's a hilarious situation where <laughs> there is a guy who had voted one way in 448, the, the opposite way in 449, and switched back in 451. And like in the course of three years, he'd flip-flopped um, so many times that they called him out in 451. Like, well, which is the real you? Like, what? And he's like, no, no. That's fake news. I never did that. And and so, okay. Ethericus was his name anyway. Um, I, most bishops, I think, didn't know or, or really possibly care about these fine-tuned quibbling. And in fact, Constantine didn't care. Constantine is on the record as saying that these things are trivial and you shouldn't be fighting about them because they can lead to only one of two, to only one of two things. Um, either, you know, um, blasphemies, um, or uh, quarrels, or both. Anyway, something like that. And and he, the council was an attempt to like fix a problem that he really hoped had never come up to begin with. So if most people don't understand what all of this is about, um, and yet you have these large, relatively large scale, you know, social like societal level disagreements right where we have clashes in the streets and people not talking to each other and things like that but it, you know but they probably don't understand the theology well then there's something else going on um and, it, and you know to some degree for most people it was something probably much more like uh football rivalries um today uh where you know anyway it's all about the narrative, you know, your guys did this to our guys and, you know, and family traditions and, you know, who your local team is and, you know, stuff like that. And not because you've researched the theology or whatever it is that sports fans are fighting about. I don't understand <laughs> it. Isn't the best team the one that wins? Like, why are you? Anyway, I'm so out of that world. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean. That is something, even at my low level, that it felt like with the Monophysite Chalcedon debate, like there's no point in talking anymore. The these It's part of a community identity at this point. So right. for them to admit we were wrong or we changed would be to deny what yes. their parents stood for. So this is not going to happen. Exactly. The longer it went, the more narrative piled up. And so it really wasn't about finding a, 
a theological compromise, which I think they did on many occasions. They found a formula that they could both live with. But does this now mean that we have to undo Chalcedon or not undo it? Or is the condemnation of so-and-so that your side did to us now revoked, which means that your guys were all criminals? Or what about that guy you martyred? You martyred our guy. That means that your persecutors... And it's like, they're not going to, they don't let go of these histories. Um, and they become, the narratives become identities. They become rallying points, kind of like of a tribal affiliations. And so it's just very difficult, especially because they're calling each other agents of Satan all the time. Like it's, it's supercharged by the metaphysical aspect of it that like sports doesn't have, right? I don't know. Maybe it does. I, I don't know. But <laughs> If you see the other side as like agents of Satan um, who are trying to basically undermine true religion and, and you know, cost you the salvation of your soul, um, that it becomes even more difficult to break out of that. And so some of these become just intractable. Um, the way that some of them, quote, lost, because once you get a group like this, it's very difficult to fold it back in like they almost never fold back in um but i think that the people called arians uh or at least theologically subordinationists that the son is sort of subordinate in some way to the father and not of the same substance in part i think the blow to their side was the battle of adrianople where their emperor valence disappeared along with his entire command staff mm. and like i think that discredited that theology it was such a shock the mm. whole two two armies just disappeared that it was like Ugh. okay god's not looking favorably mm. on that right and theodosius was able to just come in and kind of push his thing through politically in a very savvy way so if you add those things together you know the arians quote were marginalized they entirely go away they see groups always stick around um mm. but yeah it, it usually takes something like that well and again with the rise of islam that ended the monophysite debate because the two sides were now physically separated and yeah kind of... exactly so they didn't have to find a solution and yeah. um so so monophysite so it's, it's a term that Anyway, it's it's complicated. Um, yes. <laughs> so the, the, yeah, the the antithesis of monophysite is diphysite. If anybody wants to know, it's not diophysite. Mm -hmm. um, so strictly parallelly speaking, there's Chalcedonian and anti-Chalcedonian, and there's monophysite and there's diphysite. Um, yeah. Um, and in fact, if you're a Christian living under Muslim rule, it's safer to not be aligned with the Church of Constantinople in a certain way, because the Muslims see you as less of a kind of fifth column threat. Yeah. yeah. Which we will be touching on some of these things in our next yeah. episode. Look forward we to focus, it. <laughs> we focus on the narrative, which obviously we've largely been discussing the introduction to your yes. book, uh, which uh, was just incredibly fascinating to me. And I recommend people, Check out the book to find out more. The introduction is the template. Uh, you know, 
it's the first principles, as the Platonists would say, and everything sort of follows from that. Um, but yeah, sort of armed with these, um, you know, structural analyses, you can understand a lot of what happens later on too. So that's that's why we focused on them. For today, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Robin, and to all of your listener, listeners for um, having the patience to endure me talk about these for so long. <laughs> but anyway, I look forward to the next one too.